sermon text this morning comes from the book of Genesis. We've been for some time now, continuing to study the judgment from God following the fall. So we are in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. This is God's word. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, And have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you were dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, you remind us again and again and again of your mercy, your grace, your patience, the redemption you give, the salvation you bring, and your justice. Lord, I pray that as we study your judgment of Adam and all of us after him, that we would better understand Christ's work for us. We would better understand, Lord, why we must turn to Christ. Enlighten our hearts by your Spirit's power this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Well, have you, and I say this rhetorically because I'm sure you have, but have you ever done anything that you knew was totally pointless. When we lived in Kentucky, uh, we had these huge, beautiful maple trees all around our yard. And in the fall, it gets cold, something that you might not be familiar with, but in the fall there, it gets cold and these trees drop their leaves. Not all at once, of course, that would be too convenient. Uh, Slowly, just enough, to make an enormous mess. So you spend a couple hours raking up the leaves. Two days later, it's an enormous mess again. It's basically this way through the entire month of October, which is also the month that you're receding your lawn, so you don't have a choice. You've got to rake the leaves. You've got to rake the leaves. You've got to rake the leaves again and again and again. There are numerous things, though, that, that that we do that are seemingly pointless. Yesterday, Luke... In, in, in his Little League game, uh, the, the, the team that I coach, we, uh, his team had to go up to bat down 22-2. to two. It seemed pointless. And the kids were saying, this is pointless, coach. Can we just quit? I voted last week in California. <laughs> I used to be a Mariners fan. Now I'm learning to be a Padres fan. There are some things that we do where we know that the outcome will be not to our favor, (laughs) and yet we do it anyway. Because of Adam's sin, there is an extremely high likelihood that you will die one day. It is, as far as we can calculate, more certain than anything else. And yet, we don't just give in. 
do we? We don't just invite death into our homes. We work so that we can eat. And we take care of our bodies and we wash our hands, especially now. And, and we wear seatbelts and bicycle helmets and motorcycle helmets. We are careful with fire and with guns and with sharp things. But we can't avoid the inevitable. Death is still coming. Working and eating to prolong our lives that will end, most certainly, is like raking leaves in October. It's like making the bed in the morning. We are all Sisyphus with our boulders up the hill, down the hill, up the hill, down the hill, again and again and again, forever until we die. There is a meaninglessness to life, isn't there? If you really just step back and look at it all, you think, Dustin, you're cheery this morning. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have worn my flowery shirt today. <laughs> but really, this is the point of the text this morning. This is Genesis 3, 17 through 19. The futility of the human condition that comes as a result of Adam's disobedience. This is essentially the judgment that is given to Adam. Man's lot in life is now to work hard to bring forth food from the earth so that he can eat, so that he can work hard the next day to bring forth food from the earth every day for the rest of his life. Sweat and suffer. Fight the thorns and thistles just so you can survive and have something to eat, and then you die. Bleak, isn't it? That's the intention. But it's not as meaningless as it at first sounds. Okay, so hold on with me to the end of the sermon, and we'll see that there is more hope here than there is at first glance. But we've got to get there. First, though, we need to be reminded of why exactly Adam and all of humanity are being judged here. Let's look now at verse 17. We're just going to go verse by verse through the text. Look at verse 17 again. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. So basically Adam's judgment is coming because of one thing, disobedience. You listen to your wife, you disobey me. He disobeyed God's command. God said, do not eat of the tree of knowledge or you will die. Adam ate of it. Here's the judgment, a long, slow death. But notice what God says led Adam to disobey God, because I know you saw it here. We've got to talk about it. He says, because you listened to the voice of your wife and disobeyed me. Now, there are a couple issues here. God could have said, you disobeyed me, because you disobeyed me. And he could have skipped that part, couldn't he? But the reason why God includes that listening to the voice of your wife part in his indictment of Adam, is because the man had been entrusted, the man had been entrusted with God's command. He has been entrusted to lead his wife and to protect the garden and to live in obedience to God. He had been given dominion over the beast, the serpent. And yet, the beast taught his wife, and his wife taught him, and he disobeyed God. The creation order was flipped upside down. 
You've heard me say that for the past four weeks, but it's a really important part of Genesis 2 and 3. Creation order was flipped upside down. Adam was at the helm when it happened. And God is reminding him here of his failure. Adam, you should have been leading. You weren't. Even so, with that, we should not read this to mean men never listen to your wives. It's not not what God is saying here. I want to be clear on this. The Bible is not teaching that all counsel given by women is evil. There are numerous instances throughout scriptures where the wisdom of women is good and right and praiseworthy, sometimes more so than their husbands or the other men in the room. That's not the issue here. The issue at stake in Genesis 3 is what Adam's responsibility was and what Eve's counsel was. Her counsel was to disobey God. And Adam listened to her instead of teaching her the word of God, and it has led to great sorrow for all of us ever since. There are echoes of this uh, again in Scripture. One echo in particular of this exact thing happening we see in Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And remember, this is in, in, the, in the context of a promise to Abram that there would be children from him, her. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. The phrasing is almost identical. The Genesis 3.17, because you've listened to the voice of your wife. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. The point is that Abram, like Adam, did not listen to the voice of the Lord. The Lord promised a child. Sarai became impatient and says to Abram, essentially, no, the Lord will not provide. Let's do shenanigans instead. Abram listens to his wife's bad counsel. He should have been teaching his wife, reminding her of the faithfulness of God. But instead, millennia of trouble came as a result of listening to bad counsel. If the Bible were different, if Sarai had said, Abram, it would be good if we were patient. It would be good, Abram, if we trusted in the Lord's promises. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Then listening to Sarai would have been good. Because listening to Sarah would have been equivalent to listening to God. And the same is true here in Genesis 3. If if Eve had heard the serpent and turned to her husband and said, I think this guy is full of cousinage and flim-flam, and Adam listened to his wife then, and he did not eat of the tree of knowledge, then all would be well, wouldn't it? Eve's counsel would have been the reverberation of the Lord's counsel. Listening to Eve would have been listening to the voice of God, which is what Adam's call was to do. But that's not what happened. Eve's counsel was contrary to God's commands. So when Adam listened to Eve, and listen here means obey, when Adam obeyed his wife, he was doing so in direct contradiction and disobedience to the Lord's commands. And that's why we're reading about Adam's judgment. There are two points of application before we go further. 
couple things that, that I think need to be said. First of all, wives, remember the influence you have over your husbands. Your husband, yes, has the God-given responsibility to lead you. But that does not deny the fact that you do have his ear more than anyone else. He loves you and he loves to hear from you. Let your counsel to him be from the word of God. Do not think that because he has the responsibility to lead the family from the word of God that you are free to literally be the devil's advocate. Now let your own heart be filled with God's word so that the overflow is sweet. Let your husband's listening to you be hearing the reverberations of God's word. The second application, though, is for all of us, husbands, wives, singles, youths, widows, widowers, we should all be cautious of the voices that we listen to. There are many, many, many more voices around us than there were for Adam. For Adam, he, he, had, he had God, his wife, his own voice, and the serpent. Four voices. We have so many more, don't we? Certainly God's word is still very much with us. Certainly our own voice inside of us is still here. But your family members want your attention. So do your friends and your co-workers, your boss, your professors. Add to that a bunch of politicians. Myriad voices on the internet, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. There are podcasts, books, magazines, newspapers, movies, TV, radio, on and on and on and on. Countless voices. All week, every hour of the day and night, you have voices shouting for your attention. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. We have an entire army of voices that are not God. And the overwhelming majority of them want nothing more than to see the word of God corrupted and his rule undermined and your family destroyed. So who are you listening to, church? Does the media that you consume lead you to obey God's word? Do, do the voices that demand your obedience encourage you to desire the things of the Lord? Or do those voices cause you to look for satisfaction and pleasure in the things of the world? I want to be clear about what happened to Adam. Adam listened to someone that he loved, someone whom he trusted, Someone he enjoyed, someone who the Bible is very clear, he felt no shame with. Someone whom God himself had given to him. And yet her counsel was contrary to God's word. And so in listening to her, Adam disobeyed God. This does not mean that you should never listen to anyone. What I'm saying is you should listen to God above everyone else. Isaiah 40. All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. 
All the other voices are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Listen to him. Let any voice that you are listening to be filtered first through the word of God. No matter how well-meaning, no matter how appealing the counsel is, if the counsel is contrary to God's word, do not listen to it. Well, Adam listened, Adam disobeyed, and Adam received his just judgment. We're going to look now at that judgment. I'm going to examine what God's judgment of Adam was, and it comes in three parts. You see it first in the cursing of the earth, secondly in the toil of his work, and third in death. The cursing of the earth we see in verse 17 of our text. Genesis 3, 17, to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. If it seems unfair that the entire earth would be cursed, remember Adam is the ruler of that ground. He is the one who was to have dominion over the earth. And he rebelled against God. And so his work now in subduing the earth is made burdensome. One day, as we saw in Romans 8, one day all things will be reconciled. We saw that the the, the earth is waiting for its new rulers, but until then it groans. And we as its inhabitants groan as we work the earth. The earth is under a curse because of Adam. And we see that here in our text. The, cur- the earth's curse is seen, and we, 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 we understand the, the, the earth's curse because of the second condition of the judgment, the toil of work. We see this in the last bit of verse 17 on to through verse 19. But verse 17, last part, in pain you shall eat of it, it being the ground, all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, you shall eat the plants of the field, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. God is saying, all the days of your life, working to eat will be difficult. And pain, that word for pain there is the exact same word that was used uh, of of Eve's judgment. She will have pain in childbearing. He will have pain in working to eat. In pain you shall eat of it. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth. So the earth is is cursed. It's, It's fighting back. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So think, I mean, the, the comparison here is to where Adam was brought into, the Garden of Eden. In the garden, there were fruit trees, all planted by God and provided by God. And Adam had to work, but what was his work there? Harvest. Joyful harvest. Plenty. And in that, he wasn't battling thorns and thistles and Gophers and aphids and blight and black spot and drought and frost. But because now, now because of the cursing of the earth, entire seasons' crops can be destroyed. Famine is now a very real scenario for humanity. Just read through the Old Testament. Last week we looked at how many times barrenness, the barrenness of, of the womb, comes up in the Old Testament. Look at how many times famine comes up in the Old Testament. You'll see it again and again, and there was famine in the land, and there was a severe famine in the land. And because there was a famine in the land, over and over and over again, famine 
and hunger are commonplace in the Scriptures. Abundance in the garden before the fall, scarcity everywhere after the fall. So Adam's lot is now work, work, work by the sweat of his brow. And his return on investment will be eager, uh, meager, and, and yet he won't have a choice. If he wants to live, he's got to work. He must toil and labor for the rest of his life in order to eat. And then, verse 19, until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you were dust, to dust you shall return. And that's the third part of the judgment there, isn't it? Death. Work the earth, eat from the earth, sleep. Work the earth, eat from the earth, sleep. Work the earth, eat from the earth, die, return to the earth. Those three notes, the curse of the earth, the toil of the work, and death, they all combine to form one chord. And it's futility. For the rest of your life, you shall labor with pain and sweat to work the ground just so you can eat, just so you can survive, and then in the end, you're going to die. Anyway. You see the futility here? It seems pointless. Because of Adam's sin, humanity's entire being, sun up to sundown, must be devoted to surviving, but then in the end, they will not survive. They will return to the earth from whence they came. And that's what we see happening in Genesis. What happens in Genesis 4? Death. What happens in Genesis 5? Look at Genesis 5 with me. I'll just throw some verses on the screen. Thus all the days of Adam were 930 years, and he died. Genesis 5.8, thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Genesis 5.11, thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Genesis 5.14, thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Genesis 5.17, thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. See a pattern, pattern here? Genesis 5.20, thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Then there's Enoch. A little glimmer of hope with Enoch. In the midst of all this dying, there's, there's this hope. Maybe death isn't going to be the end forever. But then we're back, back to the pattern. Genesis 5.27, thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Genesis 5.31, thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. I'm not going to keep going forever. But the Bible does. Moses is making it very, very clear to us. Death is certain on this cursed earth. You will work and eat, or work to eat and eat to work, and then you will die. And it sounds like another book of the Bible, doesn't it? Does that ring Ecclesiastes to your mind? It should. Ecclesiastes 1, it starts out, the entire book starts out like this. Vanity of vanities says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And the answer throughout every chapter of the Ecclesiastes is nothing. There is no gain. You work in pain, and generations after you profit from your labors, and then you die. And yet this, this judgment from God is not meant to drive us to hopelessness and despair. That's not what it's meant to do. It's meant to turn us to Him, to teach us to trust in Him. 
Do you remember how the judgment of the woman was meant to turn her to the Lord in the midst of her trials? To remind her that she is mortal, that she is not God, and only God is God, and that through trusting God, she receives the blessing, the gift of life. The man's judgment is to have the same impact. We are to see in the midst of, of our toil that it is God who provides the rains, God who provides the seed, God who brings forth the food from the earth. And while we work, we're meant to trust his provision. Think of how Jesus taught us to pray. Matthew chapter 6. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, which is to say, God, you are Lord. You are God. You are king over all. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is the first petition? Feed me. Give us this day our daily bread. We work, but we aren't really doing anything apart from the Lord. Our work is futile apart from the Lord. God brings the rains. God brings the growth. God brings the harvest. And this is what that tells us about work. It's not pointless. A woman's childbearing pains are not pointless. A man's work pains are not pointless. Our work is an area of life where we are reminded that we must trust the Lord. And because work is something that is pointing us to God, work, despite all of its difficulty, is not wicked. It is good. It it is transformative discipline from God. And because of that, we can find enjoyment in our work. That sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? But that's actually what the Bible teaches. That that is the message of Ecclesiastes. Look at chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have any enjoyment? Did you catch that? Apart from God, apart from him, no one can eat, no one can find enjoyment. So in the work that God has given you to do, seek the Lord, knowing that in that work, you are being reminded of your mortality, your pending death, and the goodness of God. Ecclesiastes 5 says something similar. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink. Well, he likes to eat and drink. Eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. You see what the Spirit is teaching us here? The difficulty of work is given to us by God. It is a gift from God. If we didn't have work, we would be consumed with the thoughts of death. Work occupies the mind. It occupies the hands. It occupies the heart. And in the work, even in the difficulty of work, there is joy. Those who are not working, those who have nothing productive to set their minds and their hearts to and their hands to, will fall into despair and sorrow. The first year after retirement is usually the most difficult year of life. Why? Nothing to put my hands to. And so 
it is good after retirement to find something productive to put your hands to. Without work, death and despair are all that we have. It's no accident that, that the most popular video games are just pretend versions of work. People love Minecraft and Animal Crossings, even Farmville or whatever that one was called. The, the one where you collect cows and, and milk and you plant a garden. It revolutionized smartphone gaming industry, and it's all just pretend work. When gaming designers discovered that what people want most is to think that they're being productive, they flooded the market with all these games that mimic productivity, and they made billions of dollars. There is joy in productivity. God made us to enjoy it. Kids are happier when they feel like they've accomplished something for the good of the household and the family. It is good for their soul. Even a three-year-old who picks up his toys finds reward in knowing I have done something productive for the good of my family. And so, let me just say this as a warning. If you're sitting your kids in front of a video game where there is only the illusion of productivity, you are robbing them of that joy. We are made to work. And even in God's judgment of the ground, he allowed for the joy of work to continue. This is not to say that, that, that Adam's judgment is actually reward. That's not what I'm saying. Adam is, is not rewarded for disobedience. But in God's judgment, God provided a way through which the judgment would not lead to despair. There's joy to be had in the harvest, despite the toil. We know this, don't we? God made us even before the fall. He made us this way. He designed us to accept a challenge and find joy in overcoming it. I don't know if it's true or not, but there's a legend that Thomas Edison made 10,000 light bulbs before he found the one that worked. 10,000 times, 10,000 failures. James Dyson built 5,127 vacuum cleaners before he had an acceptable product. It's just the reality of work. You don't get it right the first time. You don't get it right the 50th time. Then when you do get it right, your boss doesn't like it. Then you go over budget, and then a coworker, and you have a dispute, and then you break something, and it's thorns and thistles all the way through the project. And then you complete it, and by some mystery, even though it was misery the entire time, in spite of all the pain and sorrow, you're happy. The judgment isn't that bad, right? Not so fast, because you're still going to die. <laughs> God has made it. That you don't have to live a life of despair. There is joy to be had in trusting him, even in the toil of work. There is something to look forward to every day. There is reason not to accelerate death, but death is coming. In light of this, in Psalm 90, Moses, the writer of Genesis 3, teaches us what response we should have to this reality. He says, what we should do is number our days. Look at Psalm 90, verse 12. This is one of my favorite passages. Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Today is day 15,138 for me. 
The law of averages says my tank is half empty, or if I'm Josh, half full. <laughs> my, my days are numbered. Your days are numbered. We're going to get to 80 years. We're going to get to 90 years, maybe, max, with good genes and whatever June Wolf was drinking, maybe 99 and three quarters. Right, guys? But death conquers all. In numbering our days, we are living, Moses is saying, you are to live with a constant reminder that death is God's judgment. God is God. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He is the source of life and he is judge of the universe. And so we are taught through remembering death, through numbering our days, we are taught, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. And in fearing the Lord, we are given wisdom. So we can have joy in our work, Ecclesiastes tells us. And Moses is telling us in Psalm 90, we can be wise in this life. And yet we're still going to die. That's why in the midst of his instruction in Psalm 90, even, even when Moses says we should number our days and, and we, we should seek the wisdom that the Lord gives in this life, he has this seemingly out of nowhere complaint to the Lord. Psalm 90, verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. There's this acknowledgement in Psalm 90 that though God could make our, can make our difficulty and work rewarding, though he can give us wisdom, that's not enough to defeat death. We still desperately need him to return. We still desperately need the Lord to restore creation and reconcile us back to God. And God in his mercy answers this prayer. He sent his son, a new Adam, born in human likeness. And this son would take on this life of toil and sweat. He would take on the certainty of death, and he would restore all things. So Christ comes. This is what we studied in Matthew. This is what the gospel is. Christ comes. And he lives a life of obedience. And he listens only to the voice of the Father. When his closest, most beloved friends gave him counsel that was contrary to the Father's commands, what did Christ do? Think of Peter telling Jesus that there's no way he should go to the cross. There's got to be another way. Peter responds rightly. The way Adam should have responded. Behind me, Satan. Jesus knows the voice of his dear friend, and he knows that that voice is not the voice of God. He listens to God and he onward, onward to the cross. And then it's no accident that on his way to the cross, Christ himself returns to a garden. And what does he do in the garden? He works. But his time working in the garden is not like Adam's time working in the garden. Adam in the garden ate from the bounty of God's provision, then he disobeyed God. Christ in the garden works, and he sweats. Luke 22, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He's pleading with God to give him the strength to endure the work set before him. This is toilsome work. And Luke is showing us that in Jesus' work, Jesus has taken on himself the Genesis 3 judgment. But work isn't the only judgment that Jesus takes on himself. This toil is not all. After his arrest and trial, he's brought to the governor's headquarters, and he's mocked and he's beaten. And look what Mark tells us. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Jesus takes on the sweat and the toil of the human life. He takes on himself the judgment of thorns as well. There is a direct connection to Adam's judgment. The sign of the curse of the earth is placed as a crown on Jesus' head. Sweat. Thorns. And finally, the third part of the judgment. Death. When Jesus went to the cross, he did not swoon. He did not faint. As we confess this morning as a church, he died. In his death, Jesus took on the full force of Adam's judgment. Thorns, sweat, death itself, all of it, even the exile from the garden that we'll see in a couple of weeks. Christ took all of the judgment on himself. He fulfilled the entire judgment that is due to sinful humanity. Your judgment and my judgment. He took all of it. And he died and he was buried in the earth. But he did not stay in the earth. Amen. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. If then, friends, listen, if then Christ has taken on our judgment, all of it, why would you still live under it? Why would you choose to live under judgment that Christ has taken on himself? Friend, be united to Christ in faith. Be freed from the sin that enslaves you and be freed from the judgment of death. Romans 6, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all. Once for all. I want to be in that all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. 
So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we have the hope that death is not final. In Christ, we have the hope of the resurrection. And so in Christ, we can say more than Solomon could, more than Moses could, we can say that life is not pointless. In this life, even now, we can be transformed into Christ's likeness for God's glory and the hope of eternal life with him. Amen? Isn't God good? Let's pray and thank him. Lord, thank you.